I'm Kate Daniels. To begin some of our education on cancer and what we can do about it, we meet Christina Marusik, an award-winning journalist who covers environmental health and justice for Environmental Health News. For 50 years, we've been waging what we call a war on cancer, and yet the statistics keep increasing, claiming the lives of one in five men and one in six women in the U.S. This feels insane, as it did for Christina, so she set out to more investigation and to writing about her discoveries in her book, A New War on Cancer. Christina Marusik, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am so grateful for you that you are passionate about writing and writing about something that is so critically important in our lives. I mean, in general, it's the environment and it's what's going on in for us. But now you have this new book, which is A New War on Cancer. And here, some interesting insights. You've done a lot of research and talking with the researchers and with those of us who have been touched by cancer. So uh, how did you, though, first come to decide to write this book? My younger sister, Abby, was diagnosed with thyroid cancer when she was 25 years old, which is very young for a cancer diagnosis. And thyroid cancer usually runs in families, but no one else in our family had ever had it. So we were really left wondering whether something in the environment might have played a role in her cancer, something she was exposed to as a kid or something my mom was exposed to while she was pregnant with her. And when we were trying to research that, we really couldn't find much information. It was really hard to track down um, information and her doctors didn't really have any insights. And I'm also an investigative reporter. And so I was still thinking about those questions when I wrote a series on cancer and the environment in Pittsburgh in Western Pennsylvania, which is where I live. And this region where I live has particularly high rates of certain types of cancer that have really strong ties to exposure to cancer causing chemicals. And so I, dug really deeply into this and I ended up talking to lots of experts while I was writing that series and looking at how our problems with air pollution in this region likely play a role in the high rates we have of those certain types of cancers. And while I was writing that series, I learned some things that were really shocking to me. So for example, I learned that since we started tracking cancer rates in the 1970s, rates of childhood cancers have been steadily on the rise. And that's true in Pittsburgh, that's true at the national level, and that's also true at the global level. Um, We've seen about a 35% increase in childhood leukemia, which is the most common type of childhood cancer. And then there's a handful of adult cancers with really strong links in the scientific literature to uh, exposure to cancer-causing chemicals that have also increased pretty dramatically since we started tracking cancer rates in the 70s, like multiple myeloma is up, I think, like 76%. It's really kind of startling. And I talked to a really smart uh, researcher pediatrician and epidemiologist while I was doing that investigative series on cancer in the environment. And he told me something that was this total light bulb moment for me. He said that changes uh, that 
quick are too fast to be because of genetic changes. Those happen over centuries, not decades. And that our basic diagnostic tools for something like childhood leukemia are the same now as they always have been. So this also isn't just a matter of us diagnosing more of something that's always been there. And he said the only other option is that this is something in our environment that's causing this increase in cancer rates. And um, so the book really came out of me having this personal connection to this issue with my sister and then me reporting on this issue and learning that this is this kind of global scale problem and really wanting to figure out why this is happening, who's working to change it and what the rest of us can do to help. And I think any of us could recognize the fact, I, I I thought of it in terms of myself, maybe say 20 to 30 years ago, thinking I didn't know anyone who had cancer. Uh, but now it's it's almost as common as a cold. Well, maybe not. That's an exaggeration. But it's really so much more prevalent in our world. It is. Yeah. One in three Americans is now expected to get a cancer diagnosis at some point in their lifetimes. So most of us, it's either us or it's someone we love who has had an experience with cancer at this point. Right. And so, of course, we want to think in terms of, you know, what are we going to do? There are lots of treatments. That's certainly been happening. Thank goodness, because that has helped people. But don't we want to look at root causes? What is happening? Like you talked about the environment and especially in the area where you live. Yeah, one thing I learned while working on the book was that only seven to nine percent of global funding for cancer goes toward prevention and all the rest goes toward uh, trying to find a cure and better treatments. And those are really important, right? Better treatments saved my sister's life. As a result of all that funding we've put into treatments, we're much, much better at treating cancer today than we used to be. So a lot more people survive the disease. But if we think about this like a war, if we stick with that war on cancer metaphor, that would be like spending 91% of our budget on treating soldiers who come back from the battlefield wounded and only 9% of our budget on measures that could stop them from getting hurt in the first place. So it's just a disproportionate amount of funding that goes toward treatment and cures. Certainly we want to keep improving those and keep looking for a cure. But while we do that, we also need to do more to prevent cancer. And anyone who has survived cancer um, certainly my sister will tell you they would have rather had prevention than a cure, right? Treatment is not fun. It's really difficult. It's really traumatic. You deal with anxiety for the rest of your life that your cancer might come back. Mm. Um, people can have health effects as a result of either having cancer or getting chemo that last for their whole lives and cause additional health problems. So we, again, I think I want to emphasize that treatments are really important, and I'm glad that we've gotten so much better at those, but we also need to do a lot more to prevent cancer from happening in the first place. And one place there's a lot of opportunity for that is in reducing our exposure to cancer-causing chemicals in our everyday lives. And we're surrounded by those chemicals. And and there might be these names for the certain ones, but I, if we look around us... All the plastic around us, that's all made with chemical, right? That's right. Plastics are a huge source of our exposure to these chemicals. 
I looked at a study, I wrote a story about a study that researchers did a couple years ago that found that there are more than 10,000 chemicals used in plastics manufacturing and a huge proportion of them uh, have the potential to cause cancer in humans. And uh, another huge proportion of them have never been tested for safety. So we just don't actually know the impacts. And, you know, we all know at this point that we have microplastics in our bodies and there are microplastics throughout the food chain. And um, basically every phase of plastics production, 99% of plastics are made from fossil fuels. So uh, the extraction of fossil fuels to make plastics puts carcinogens into the environment. And then the processing of those fossil fuels into the building blocks of plastic is done at plants that also put lots of carcinogens in the environment. And then our contact with plastics, you know, increases our risk of exposure to these chemicals. And then we don't really have a good way to dispose of plastics. Only 10% of the plastics ever produced have actually been recycled. And the rest are either burned and then they're releasing carcinogens into the air or they go into a landfill where they can leach carcinogens into the water and into the soil or they wind up in the ocean where those chemicals are getting into the food chain and impacting ecosystems. So you're absolutely right. There are lots of other places where we encounter harmful chemicals, but plastics is a big one. And while we're trying to have, I guess, like a war on plastics and not use as many plastic bags as we go shopping, using our totes now more so. But as you say, it's they're in everything, our clothing. There's so much plastic in that. It's, it's just pervasive. How do we even begin to turn that big ship around? I'm glad you asked that. Our use of plastics and the way we as individuals interact with plastics you're right there's only so much we can do because they're kind of so pervasive and that's actually true when it comes to our exposure to a lot of these chemicals that raise our cancer risk there's only so much we can do as individual people to try and reduce our exposure and reduce our family's exposure. And there are some steps you can take that can help. But a lot of the experts I interviewed for my book, you know, they're, they've devoted their lives to this work. And they all said, I heard over and over, we can't shop our way out of this problem. We need systemic change and we need to change the way we regulate these chemicals. Because even if you have a PhD in organic chemistry and you spend all day every day working to reduce our exposure to cancer causing chemicals, there's still only so much you can do at home to protect yourself and your own family until we do a better job of regulating these chemicals so that everyone is less likely to be exposed to them. And how do we stop that? Again, it's so pervasive. We we want to stop that, but yet, do we stop buying things? Uh, how do we do that? What did you find, Christina? So the good news is that there are some really brilliant people who have dedicated their lives and their careers to helping address this problem. So None of us have to start from scratch. And I know that when you first start learning that there are chemicals kind of everywhere that can increase your cancer risk, it can feel really overwhelming. And I, I've noticed that people kind of fall into one of two camps. So some people uh, decide they're going to learn everything there is to know about this and 
watch every YouTube video and become an organic goddess and only eat the cleanest food and read every label and manage this, um, you know, through their shopping behaviors and do what it takes to protect their families. And other people say, well, everything gives you cancer nowadays. So I'm not going to think about this too much. And uh, I'm going to try and put it out of my mind because that's very disturbing information. But there's a third option that I think is more empowering than either of those, which is to learn about the organizations and the people that are tackling this problem and then figure out ways to help support their efforts. And so one of the easiest ways to do that is to follow the organizations that are leading this work on social media so that you can learn about what they're doing, but more importantly, quickly answer their calls to action. So if there's a federal bill up for consideration and they need people to sign a petition or call lawmakers or go vote on a law that would protect us from cancer-causing chemicals in our everyday lives, you know about it and you're able to take action and share the call for action and help get other people to do that too. Another easy way is to donate some time or donate some money to these organizations. Almost all of the organizations leading this work are nonprofits and they're kind of small but mighty teams of people who are working really hard to solve this uh, issue on behalf of all of us. And uh, donations make a big difference. And the third way is uh, informing your lawmakers generally that our exposure to cancer-causing chemicals in our everyday lives is a, a big concern for their constituents and that you want them to be thinking about that uh, and making it a legislative priority. And uh, that's true at the federal level, but that's also really important at the, at the state level. So right now, in the absence of meaningful chemical regulation at the federal level, a lot of states are stepping up to the plate and uh, passing bans on cancer-causing and uh, other toxic chemicals. So for example, uh, Washington state just passed a really sweeping ban on toxic chemicals in a bunch of consumer products. And that included a lot of endocrine disrupting chemicals, which um, disrupt our natural hormonal processes and could raise our risk for certain types of cancer that are associated with our hormones like breast cancer and prostate cancer. And when states do things like that, it often ends up protecting everyone because it's really tricky for a manufacturer to make one set of lotion or makeup or mascara to sell in Washington state and then a different set to sell everywhere else. So oftentimes they just end up changing the formula so that they can sell legally in Washington state and then we all get the benefit of that. So federal legislation and, and federal change can take a long time. Um, but I think there's a lot of hopeful stuff happening at the state level right now. So really important to, um, you know, while you're taking steps to protect yourself and your family, uh, also take these steps that can help push for systemic change. And speaking of those individual changes, um, another thing we can do is you mentioned, should we all just stop buying these things? And that is one way to kind of apply market pressure. 
But an easy way to really amplify the impact of doing that is to take a couple extra minutes and tell a company that you did that. Mm -hmm. So if you've been using the same hand cream your whole life and you love it, and then you find out that it has an ingredient in it that raises your cancer risk, so you decide to switch, the company is unlikely to notice that one person stopped buying their hand cream. But if you take a few extra minutes to tell that company, hey, uh, write a letter or make a call, send an email, uh, maybe even tweet at them and say, hey, I this is my favorite product. I love it. But I found out you use this ingredient that raises my cancer risk. So I'm switching to this other thing. And then if you also tell if you find a new one that you like that doesn't use that ingredient and you let that new company know, hey, I'm switching because your ingredient list is free of chemicals that raise my cancer risk. You can really amplify the impact of that shopping choice much more than if you just make the switch. Which is really, yeah, that's great, encouraging us to share that information in in multiple ways, but certainly with the company. Are there, so it's great that states, some states are then leading an initiative. I know Washington can be proactive, and I'm glad that we've made some of these changes. What about, though, on a worldwide level? Are there some countries that are really better at this than we are? There are, yeah. So the European Union isn't perfect, but they generally do a much better job at regulating toxic chemicals than we do in the United States. So there are a lot of ingredients in food and cosmetics, and there are a lot of pesticides that are banned in the European Union because scientific research indicates they're bad for our health and often that they raise our cancer risk that are still allowed in the United States. So, you know, that's frustrating to learn, but it's also, it also means that we don't have to reinvent the wheel if we want to do a better job of regulating these chemicals, right? There's already a system in place in the European Union that's working that keeps people safer from these chemicals that we could uh, model bills in the United States around. So it's not like we have to be first. We can look at what other countries have done to do a better job of regulating these chemicals, and we can take similar steps. So what do you think, or did you find why are we behind in doing that sort of thing? Why are we not there as well? There are a lot of reasons for that. And one is that in the United States, the Republican Party has been pushing an anti-regulation agenda for 30 years, and it's kind of gotten more and more intense. And so there are a lot of roadblocks to improving regulations. When Donald Trump uh, first took office, one of his first executive orders was saying that anyone who suggested a new regulation of any kind had to also offer up two other regulations to repeal of any kind. Just saying nobody can make a new regulation unless we repeal two other ones. And, you know, that doesn't take into account that the regulations we have in place are there to protect us from things like toxic chemicals or abuses in our workplace. And there's been this kind of anti-regulatory, there's been this idea um, really that's been politicized and pushed in the United States that any kind of regulation is bad for business and that, mm. you know, we need to prioritize the economy. And what's not being said is that that often means at the expense of our health, right? That that often means that 
corporations can make huge profits and we bear some of the expense by being exposed to harmful chemicals and having health problems as a result. So I think that's unique to the United States. There's also a problem where our regulatory agencies in the United States have been underfunded and understaffed for decades. So they also oftentimes don't have the ability to meaningfully enforce the chemical regulations that we do have. So we need to, I think we have a lot of work to do to remind people that regulations can are important, <laughs> that they're there to protect us, and then also to better fund and staff the agencies that are meant to be making these regulations. Because the EPA, for example, is behind on setting new regulations for a lot of harmful and cancer-causing chemicals. And they're often sued by environmental and health advocacy groups to try and compel them to do what they're supposed to and, and reevaluate these chemicals and set new laws. And sometimes that makes difference, but it's just really difficult for the agency to do when they are underfunded and understaffed. Exactly. This is such an important work that you've done. All this writing and investigating you've gone into, uh, the people you've talked to, which is just that much more. I mean, we can only cover so much in a half hour, but in the book, uh, you know, really cover this in so much more depth with the interviews we've done with people. Uh, tell us where we're going to pick up your book. The book is available just about anywhere books are sold. So you can ask at your local bookshop. And if they don't already have it on the shelf, they could order it for you. It's also available online anywhere books are sold. And I personally like uh, bookshop.org. That allows you to find any book you want and they'll order it through your local bookstore. So your local bookstore gets a portion of the sales. Um, it's also available on audiobook. So it's on Audible or anywhere else audiobooks are available. Great. So a lot of great places to find it. And I think we really owe it to ourselves. Uh, you've shared ways that we can be more active. Uh, we can really lead a crusade here to make a difference. And I encourage us to do that, but that's going to be found more in your book. Do you, um, you, you mentioned nonprofits who are really doing a, a lot of good work. Do a couple of them stand out in your mind that you would like to promote here? There's an appendix in my book mm -hmm. with a really big list of the organizations that are leading this work. A couple that I profiled in the book are Silent Spring Institute, mm -hmm. uh, which is focused on preventing breast cancer uh, and other cancers that impact women, named for Rachel Carson's book of the same name. Um, the Children's Environmental Health Network, which is focused on reducing harmful exposures in schools and daycares and for young children. The Healthy Building Network, they do a lot of great work trying to make our building materials healthier and lower our cancer risk from the buildings we spend our time in. And the Environmental Working Group, 
They're a nonprofit research and advocacy group that has some really great resources on what you can do in your own life to reduce these exposures. There's a lot of that information in my book too. Again, I try to encourage everyone to do more than just take those individual steps. But um, the Environmental Working Group has an app that I really like called the Healthy Living app that lets you look up personal care products, cleaning products, food products, and it'll tell you if there are chemicals that raise your cancer risk. And they also certify products as being free of a long list of harmful chemicals. So you can look in their uh, website or in the app if you just want to buy new shampoo and you want to make sure it doesn't have chemicals in it that raise your cancer risk, you can go look for one that they've certified and that's going to be a safer option. That's really so great. So useful to us to be able to, you know, make those wise choices when we shop. Uh, And that's, and it's all contained in the book. So one of the things that had popped out at me, because it's, it's convenient, but people eat a lot of popcorn, but that microwavable popcorn, that's a, a big red flag, isn't it? Yeah, microwavable popcorn, the the bags, the inside of the bags is, are coated with PFAS, that stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. So everyone just uses the acronym PFAS, P-F-A-S. And that's a class of more than 12,000 chemicals with similar chemical makeups that are associated with all kinds of nasty health effects, including cancer. And it's the stuff that's in nonstick pans. It's the stuff that's in Teflon. It's used to make anything grease-proof, stain-proof, waterproof. These are also sometimes called forever chemicals because they don't break down. So they can build up in our bodies and in soil and in water and in animal tissue and cause problems. And the inside of pop microwavable popcorn bags is coated with this stuff so that grease doesn't seep out of the bag. And uh, I spoke with a researcher for the book who did a study that found that people who regularly eat microwavable popcorn have higher levels of PFAS in their bodies than people who don't. So really, if you love popcorn, really easy way to avoid it is just to buy an air popper. Uh, Those are also pretty easy compared to making your popcorn on the stove, which can be a bit of a production. But avoiding microwavable popcorn is one really easy way to lower your exposure to these PFAS chemicals. She also found that these chemicals are used to treat a lot of fast food wrappers, like the little piece of paper that your baked goods from the coffee shop are wrapped in. Those are often coated with PFAS. So are those to-go boxes that are brown paper that have a shiny inside. That's often PFAS. And she did another study that found that people who eat takeout regularly also have higher levels of PFAS in their bodies than people who cook at home more often. So we already know cooking at home is healthier for us for lots of reasons, but it turns out that Uh, avoiding lots of that takeout packaging that's coated with this stuff can also help. And there, I should add that there are a number of um, big grocery stores and restaurant chains that have pledged to remove PFAS from their packaging. I know like Chipotle and Taco Bell are on that list. I think Whole Foods is um, working to take it out, but most of them are on a kind of long timeline for that process. Mm -hmm. That is really so much insight. And as I said, 
The book really contains so much more, and we owe it to ourselves. It's a life and death situation, literally. And I so appreciate all the work that you've done, the time you've spent with us this morning, Christina Marusic. It's been great. We should mention your website, too, is a great way to get more information. Yes, there's more information about the book on my website. You can go to newwaroncancer.com or christinamarusic.com. Terrific. Well, you are amazing. I'm so grateful to you for following your heart and your passion and for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. It's been really great talking with you. Thanks.